Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everyone. It is never too late to start prioritizing your cognitive health. Whether you're 18 or 80, you can benefit from brain-supporting habits. And look, we love to talk about all the high-tech tools and innovations in the longevity space, but you don't actually need any fancy gadgets to have a younger brain. In fact, sometimes the simplest habits can be the most powerful. Today, we have Luisa Nicola, a neurophysiologist, human performance coach, and founder of NeuroAthletics, a consulting firm that works with the best athletes in the world. In this episode, you'll learn about all her simple sleep, exercise, and nutrition tips to reduce age-related brain damage, which, believe it or not, Louisa says happens by the time you're 30. Now, if you're at all concerned about brain health, and I'd argue most health-forward people are, including myself, it's an episode you don't want to miss. Louisa, welcome. Jason, thank you so much for having me. So great to have you. I am a huge fan of all the content you're putting out, whether it's on social media or your podcast. So I am very grateful that you're taking the time to chat with us. And maybe let's start by providing a bit about your background, including your personal health journey, which led you to your current area of focus. Yeah, very, very uh, vast variety in my background. Um, so I was born and raised in Australia, and I was a triathlete. So I loved sport growing up. I was a, I was a swimmer, which was a natural progression into elite sport, especially triathlon, and just fell in love with high performance. I fell in love with neuroscience and fell in love with performance at a high level. Uh, during that time, I thought I was going to be the the world number one triathlete. But during that time, I went and studied. I did exercise physiology. I studied pure mathematics before going into medicine and science. And so that's what I, I'm, I'm doing now. So neuroathletics, which is my company, is literally the intersection of neurology or neuroscience and high performance. I wanted, I wanted to be able to bring my knowledge from the medical field and the scientific field into the area of elite athletes in terms of how can we make these athletes better? So what better way to, you know, marry the two up? And so what, what does that look like in, in layman's terms so we can kind of better understand this growing area? Yeah. So what does the, what does neuroathletics look like? Yes. Yeah. Interesting question. So it's my belief uh, that everything arises from the nervous system. And if anybody's ever done uh, neuroanatomy 101, you would understand that when we run, when we move, when we extend an arm and we hit a baseball, it's not coming from muscle first. It's coming from brain first, meaning that our brain is literally responsible for everything that we do, every thought that we have, every action we produce. And unfortunately, when we look at the realm of high performance, when you look at 
an elite baseball player and you go in and you look at major league, but because I work with um, several teams and baseball players. So I have a first class ticket into what happens in the background. And a lot of these sports science departments rarely focus on the neurology application of what's going to make a ball player better. When you look at a personal trainer or an athletic trainer, if you will, strength coach, what they're looking at is how can I program my athlete better so they can become stronger. And that generally involves principles of training such as strength, mobility, endurance. How can I make them stronger? It rarely involves neurology. So that was always worrying to me. I thought, well, how can you make an athlete better if you're not even focusing on the nervous system? So at the early stages, which is around 2017 when I moved to the States to work with these players, I started assessing them using an EEG. So an EEG is an electroencephalogram. It's my primary modality as a neurophysiologist. We use them primarily to pick up on epilepsy and seizures. So it's this cap, you put it on your head, all of these leads are coming out of it and we can pick up on different things. We can pick up on the functionality of the brain. So I thought to myself, why not use this for athletes? So that's what I started doing. I started assessing these athletes, these high-level athletes that are supposedly at the peak. And let me tell you, if they walked into a normal gym where they're training, the trainer would say, oh, he's at his peak, he's you know at his peak athletic performance. But then if I have a look in their brain, you would see that there's a lot of different areas of dysfunction. So that was my position. I said, well, let me come in. You do from the neck down, I'll do from the neck up and we'll focus on this one athlete and we'll get him performing better, but let me just take care of the brain. So so what can us mere mortals, you know, maybe we're weekend warriors or we just want to perform better, learn from neurophysiology and some of the work you've done with elite athletes? First of all, you're not a mere mortal. Everybody, I believe, is an athlete. I think that everyone has the ability to be an athlete. And that means that if you take an actual NBA athlete, their Olympic game is every time they step onto the court. You know, they're preparing for the NBA playoffs. Everybody has their own Olympic game within them. That means if you're a mother, um, you're, you know, if you're a mother, if you're a full-time father, whatever that is, your Olympic game is getting up and every day and making sure that your children are fed, clothed. That's an, that is an Olympic sport. I'm not a mother yet, but I, I, I've seen it. Um, I go home and visit my, my uh, brother and my sister-in-law and I look at them. I'm like, how do you guys like do this? This is like an Olympic game. They've got three kids. It's just crazy. So if you guys, are, if whoever's listening to this, take that and then think of yourself as an elite athlete and think, what do I need to do every day to perform better, think faster, and live longer? Well, you generally need to do these three things. Every single living person needs to do these three things. They're the fundamentals, I would call them. It falls under the lines of sleep, exercise, and nutrition. So these three core pillars sit at the base of the pyramid, I would call it. It's these baseline things that you need to be focusing on each and every day to get yourself to perform at that peak. And we can go through those. Yeah. Let's start with with sleep. What What is your, your take on quantity versus quality and the trackers and all the things, so to speak? 
So first of all, I think that sleep is the most underrated high performance tool that we have. I'm often going back when somebody says to me, what's more important for the brain? Is it sleep? If I had to choose one, is it sleep or is it exercise? I go, I toggle between the two because they're so fundamentally important and important for performance, like immediate performance, but also important for lifelong brain health. So quantity and quality both need to be taken into consideration. And I always say that you should be having quality sleep consistently. That means that, yes, it would be great if we were all sleeping eight or nine hours a night. Wouldn't that be just beautiful? But I'm guessing that a lot of mothers and fathers out there and people with high stress jobs just can't do that. But if you can focus on getting quality sleep each night, then that's just the first thing. Just just focus on that, just getting quality sleep each night. And then you can start to optimize after that. I think with sleep trackers, where we're going wrong is I sleep with a sleep tracker. I also sleep on a uh, a performance enhancing mattress. Um, but I think we're getting it mixed up because yes, they're valid. Yes, the metrics are valid. You can pick up on REM scores. You can pick up on deep sleep scores. But ultimately, you should just focus on how you're feeling, you know, when you sleep, when you wake up in the morning. And so in terms of how, how we're feeling, you know, I think that there's nothing greater than, well, there are greater things, obviously, but there's, put it this way, there's a great feeling when you wake up feeling well rested and there's no alarm clock and you just, you get up early and you feel great. And I think we all know how critical sleep is. And w- with that said, you know, before we fully segue to exercise and the benefits of exercise, how does exercise impact our sleep, in your opinion? So it has many profound relationships, sleep and exercise. And I actually just did an article and it was related to why the timing of exercise. You know, when should we be exercising? And I always say that the best time to exercise is in the morning because if we're exercising at night, what we're going to do is exercise induces a surge of a lot of hormones. And one of them is our stress hormone cortisol because we're stressing our system. And it takes a bit of time for that cortisol to get back down to baseline. So we want to try and keep it exercise away from sleep as much as possible. So we have time at night to relax and activate our parasympathetic nervous system and get into sleep. So I always say that sleep, you're preparing for sleep the moment that you wake up. So if you're exercising first thing in the morning, that's the best thing to do but I actually want to focus a bit more on sleep. So the reason why I say that sleep is fundamentally important is because of these two stages that we dip into. We have four stages of sleep. We have light sleep, and this is when we're falling asleep and we're in that first stage of sleep. Then we go into stage two, and then the stage three and four, which is stage three is REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. This and the, and the fourth stage, which is deep sleep, these are the two stages I'm really looking at when I'm looking at the profile of an athlete. You know, I track all of my athletes on the back end, and I'm generally looking at these two things. REM sleep is fundamentally important for these few reasons. First of all, REM sleep is where all of our emotional first aid takes place. So emotional first aid, meaning that for an athlete, if they're going onto a field, we want to make sure that they're able to have emotional control. So they're not going to just do something that's out of their control. And we know that they can get all of their 
regeneration of emotions in REM sleep. So that's the first thing. REM sleep's also involved in memory consolidation and a lot of learning takes place during that during that phase. So that's that's why we need to be optimizing for REM sleep to start with. Second to that is oh, you go. No, no, go ahead. That those those are the two exact things that when I look at my aura score every day, I go to deep and REM because that's what matters. Yeah, and then we look at deep sleep. Like, what is deep sleep? It is well. It's characterized as as actually called slow wave sleep because if you look at an EEG, when somebody goes into a sleep study, they've these big big waveforms. So it's called slow wave sleep. And what's happening in the brain during that time is many things. The first thing is happening is we're doing a complete wash of our brain. So we go through this system called the glymphatic system. And the glymphatic system is when all of our little brain cells shrink. And by all of them, I mean a specific type of brain cell, which is called the glial cell. During this time of deep sleep, these glial cells shrink. So therefore, if they shrink, it means that the fluid in our brain, which is the cerebral spinal fluid, that washes through the brain. And when it washes, it's like a sewage system or like a a dishwasher, if you will. It washes all of the debris and all of the junk that gets built up and accumulates during the day. It washes it out. And that's a really important system because if we don't have the clearing out of these toxins, one of the toxins or one of the proteins that builds up is amyloid beta. This is a protein that is one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So we know that if we're not sleeping well at night, we could over time get a buildup of these detrimental proteins, these detrimental toxins over time, which can lead to neurodegenerative diseases. And in your opinion, what are some of the things we should be doing to make sure that doesn't happen? How do we set ourselves like, you know, whenever we talk about sleep, I ask the question, how do we make sure we're setting ourselves up for a great night of sleep? Many things we can be doing. First and foremost is we want to have a set time that we're going to sleep. Set time for, you know, neuroathletics lights out is 10 p.m. I think that that's the perfect time that everybody should be go should be asleep. So let's work on that. Let's work on the 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. model because that means we're working on an eight-hour model. If we're wanting to be asleep by 10 p.m., we generally want to be in bed by around 9.30. So we want to be winding down. So that means in order to wind down, we want to be dimming as many lights as possible. Light attenuates this hormone called melatonin. And melatonin gets secreted. Well, it gets released from a specific area of the brain. And when that's released, it tells our brain, okay, it's time to go to sleep. It's our sleepiness hormone. But what happens is it gets released in response to darkness. So what's the opposite of darkness? Light. So if it's light out, we're not going to be getting the release of this hormone. So we're not going to be feeling sleepy. So it's really important that during the hours of around, I would say, 8.30 p.m., you start to dim the lights. You don't have to be pitch black. You want to. You don't want to be put in any danger. But try and dim the lights as much as possible. So that's a starting point. Another thing is, one problem that I had during my sleeping fitness journey, I call it, is I had a problem with waking up because I was hot. 
I'd be really cold. So I would have a lot of covers on my bed and I'd go to sleep with socks on. But it turns out that in order for us to stay asleep, our core body temperature needs to drop two degrees. So during the night when my core body temperature was rising because I had so many clothes on, I was under the blankets, it would wake me up. So another great hack, if you will, I don't like the word hack, but another great tool that you can be using is try and monitor your temperature and try and get your core body temperature to drop two degrees. You can do that with a with a thermostat. Something many people do towards the evening to to wind down, maybe they have a drink. Maybe they enjoy THC. Um, I have a strong opinion on both, but I know you do too. So how do you view both in terms of what's safe, what's healthy, and what's not in terms of consumption? And, And this goes beyond sleep. It just isn't about sleep. It's for overall health and well-being. Yeah. I'm very vocal, actually. I had a a tweet that went viral last week and um, it was around THC. uh, I think it triggered a lot of people. And coincidentally, so did the alcohol one. And so first and foremost, it's I'm very honest when I say that no amount of alcohol is good for the brain. And that is true. It's just, I mean, when we say good for the brain, I mean, is it serving the brain in any way, the brain cell? It's it's not. And moderate alcohol use consumption, I should say, is characterized by seven drinks per week for females, 14 drinks per week for males. So if anybody's listening and they're having seven drinks a week, this could mean one drink a night, which is very common. It could mean three drinks in one night and four drinks in another. It doesn't matter. It just means seven in total you are classified as a moderate drinker. And when you sit in that category, what the scientific literature says, and I've I've put a reel up about this on my Instagram, it shows that you can have literally low-level brain damage. You are killing the neurons in your brain. You're killing both the, you're affecting the white matter of the brain. The brain is composed of gray matter and white matter. It's just the cell bodies and the axon of the cell. You're breaking apart both and shedding both of these parts of the neuron. So drinking is not good for you. We know that already. But where it comes in with sleep is when you look at the active ingredient within alcohol that makes us feel what we feel, it's ethanol. And ethanol is actually a sedative. So you may say to me, and I get this a lot, but Louisa, I actually calm down and I feel great when I drink and it puts me into sleep. Well, what's happening is you are, yes, you are calming down because it's it's like a depressant when you have, it, it, it lowers your inhibitions. So you're calming down a lot, yes, but you're sedating yourself at the end of the day. Sedating is very different to sleeping. So if you drink, you actually block deep sleep and REM sleep. So you don't even get into those stages. It's very hard to get into those stages. So you're doing yourself a disservice by drinking. And look, it's the same for THC. So in terms of that consumption number, the the seven drinks a week for, for women and the 14 for men, you know, I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, did I do some damage to my brain during college and in my 20s when I was going out every night, having a great time, 
drinking way too much and I don't even want to start to do the math of, of, of how much I consume. I don't even want to start. With that said, is that damage reversible in the same way, you know, smokers who stop smoking can undo the damage in their lungs? Yeah. It's great that you said that because over a five-year period of complete abstinence from smoking cigarettes, you can reverse it. And with the brain, once a brain cell dies, it dies. Neurogenesis, which is the creation of new neurons, isn't possible the way that we think. We can grow new neurons in the hippocampus of our brain, but it's not completely reversible when we take all of these, you know, if we're killing ourselves with drugs and alcohol, the effects that we get, if it is dying off of, of these neurons, and it's not reversible. However, I will say with everything, the dose makes the poison. So one drink, even though I say no amount of alcohol is good for you, one drink here and there, and by here and there, maybe one a month is not going to really do most likely any harm. And what about THC? I go back to your viral tweet. It was it was none was acceptable. Yeah, I I said um, I think the tweet was because I pinned it now to my profile saying that. Um, sorry to the people who need to hear this, but THC is not helping you sleep, and that is very true. It's it's just the same effect. It's actually not helping you sleep. It may be getting you high, and the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana is THC. That's what may be giving you that release of stress. It may be helping you just come down, but it's, it's certainly not inducing sleep. So uh, closing the loop on sleep before we bring it back to exercise, you mentioned melatonin, the hormone. I think of melatonin, the supplement. I think of jet lag. I got to get on a, a plane in a couple of weeks. Many people are traveling right now. Um, let's talk about melatonin the supplement for a moment. Um, and I'll pause there. I have a strong opinion on this one. Yeah. And by the way, I just triggered to myself, I think when we were talking about the stages of sleep, I said to you that stage three was REM. Stage three is deep sleep. Everybody, stage four is REM. I know people probably don't care about that. I care about that. I just wanted to fix myself up. Um, okay. So melatonin is already naturally secreting. Okay. We already get a natural release of this from the pineal gland. We, we already secrete it naturally. So therefore taking exogenous melatonin, that means taking a supplement form means that we are, we are drinking, if you will, or, you know, having, consuming a hormone. That's the first thing that we need to be clear. And in Australia, you need, under the age of 60, you need a prescription for melatonin. Most of Europe, too. Oh, in most of Europe, yeah. But in the States, it's it's not control. You can just go and get it over the counter. And that's crazy, right? Because now that we know it's a hormone, you don't see me just going over and just buying estrogen in a tablet uh, at, the, at, at Walmart or wherever people get their supplements from. Don't get your supplements from Walmart. But um, – yeah, it's that's what's crazy to me. But let's just say you do. First of all, 
the supplement industry isn't regulated. So therefore, a lot of people can go out and put whatever they want, just slap any label on a bottle and call it what it is. It's not regulated tightly like an FDA-approved prescription drug. So when you're going and getting these supplements, that's the first thing you need to be aware of. So supplement quality is by far the first thing that you need to consider. Where are the supplements manufactured and what's within them? So you need to trust the company. But second to that, there was a review done in, I think it was early 2020, maybe 2019, where they went and pulled most of the melatonin supplements. And if you look at, at a normal melatonin supplement, you're generally getting three grams, maybe five grams, or it shoots up to 10 grams. A lot of people are getting the five, five milligram I think it's five milligram or five gram bottle. But what they found in this study was in actual fact, the bottle said five grams, but it's actually 100 times that amount. So these people were dosing themselves with, you know, what they thought was five mil, is it five milligrams? Am I talking right? Or five grams? I'm pretty sure it's milligrams. Yeah, I think you're right. Five milligrams, but it's actually a hundred times more than that, and that's scary because now your your brain is getting an influx of this naturally secreting hormone, but it's a synthetic version. It's probably thinking, "What is going on?" So I'm I'm really against it. The only time I'm not against it is to help get back on circadian rhythm due to jet lag. And so, what are some of your other jet lag hacks? A lot of people, and again, I think that the 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 message with melatonin is. Make sure you're buying it from a trusted source. Don't take it daily. Treat it like a treat it like a drug, because in many countries it is. And with regards to jet lag, it could be valuable to take if you if you're trying to recover from jet lag and reset your circadian rhythm. But what else can one do when they're experiencing jet lag? First thing you do when you get to your destination is go for a run. It turns out that exercise is um, great for as soon as you're getting into a certain country to get yourself back in uh, on that time zone. Uh, another thing you want to do is I don't ever sleep. I, I travel back and forth from Australia quite a bit uh, and I never sleep on these planes. So I get knocked around really hard. One thing that I've found works really well is not eating on a plane. I know it sounds ridiculous, but when you're up in the air during that time, Everything you do from how much you drink to what you consume can have an effect on what happens when you land. So I try my hardest to only eat clean food. So I take my own food when I'm traveling and I'm dosing with as much water as I can. So just hydrating. One of the reasons why we feel so jet lagged is because we're dehydrated. Yeah. How, how much do you, hi hydration, I think is becoming an area of focus. And I think for good reason, you know, my out of one experience with hydration is I think I've been dehydrated and I think many people are dehydrated. They don't know it. And so in terms of quantity, what are your, do you have any general rules of thumb when you're, when you're traveling? Yeah. I mean, look, my general rule of thumb each day is three liters of water. I don't know if that's a gallon. You'll have to do a, do your math. Um, three liters of water, but when I'm on a plane, I'm having uh, I would have like three liters just on that plane. It's ridiculous. Anything else in terms of jet lag? So you're, you're staying hydrated. Maybe you're taking uh, melatonin and you're going for a run when you land and you're not eating on the plane. I think that's a big one, but important. Yeah, it's a big one. It's hard to do. You can take your own food. Don't get me wrong. Um, and moving around as much as you can. I'm hardly ever sitting on these planes. 
So, so bringing it back to to exercise, you say there is a distinction between physical activity and exercise. Can you elaborate? When we talk about exercise, I'm talking about actual exercise that is inducing a response in terms of heart rate. So when I speak about the, the effects of exercise on neurodegeneration or the exercise, the effects of exercise on the brain, you have to have you have to be working hard. So physical activity, and this is actually um, you know, a government standard, mandated standard, physical activity is actually anything that is involved in you not sitting. I do physical activity when I go to the bathroom. That is physical activity because it involves me being physical and it involves forward emulation. So I'm needing my body to get there, but it doesn't cost me that much energy. So that is so physical activity is just your daily living, your daily walking around. And I think the reason why we're getting confused in terms of how much exercise should we be doing per day is because of the wording around it. And I bring this um, story up. I went back to Australia and my mom, I'm always harping on to my parents about exercise. And they're like, but Louisa, I put the clothes on the line and, you know, I'm doing the gardening. And I'm like, that's great, mom. That's called physical activity. That's not called exercise. So if we're going to get really serious about our brain health, we need to be talking about the language and we need to be exercising, not just doing physical activity. And within exercise, there's different types. There's aerobic, there's resistance training. How do you think about, and, and there's, there's more than that, but how do you think about the different types of exercise in terms of how they benefit our brain. So these two types, aerobic and resistance training, are two methods that everyone should be doing if they want to have a great performing brain, if they want to slow the brain aging process down, and if they want to have good cardiovascular health. So let's talk about what aerobic exercise can do. From a brain perspective, if you want to go out and do uh well, actually what you should be doing to get a great performing brain is in terms of aerobic exercise is you should be working out for at least a minimum of 20 minutes a day, if you can. It's very hard, but what this does is when we exercise, we are ultimately getting blood flow to the brain. If we get blood flow to the brain, we're getting more oxygenation, we're getting more nutrients to the brain. So that's the first thing. So we're getting blood flow to the brain when we exercise. But also what happens during aerobic physical activity is, and that is maybe a run, a, a, lot, a fast paced walk, a swim, whatever that is, you're also releasing these hormones. Uh, one of them is a growth hormone for the brain. It's called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, and that gets released. And when that's released, it tells certain areas in your brain to act better, if you will. So for example, it can go straight through into the hippocampus. We um, spoke about that earlier. You can go through into the hippocampus and help with the growth and the proliferation of new neurons. So by working out, by doing cardiovascular training in the form of aerobic training, you can grow new neurons in this area of the brain. And how do you define aerobic training? Is it zone two where you have an elevated heart rate, the 60% of your heart rate? And for those who don't wear a tracker, it's essentially being slightly out of breath where it's, you have difficulty speaking. Is that how you think about it? I think about it like this. I think about it as in zone 
two and zone three, because zone three, zone two is when you are, let's just say you're on a treadmill, you're working hard, you can feel the effects, but you can also hold a conversation. That's zone two. And zone two is great. We actually prescribe zone two for a lot of our clients. And we do this because zone two is great for mitochondrial biogenesis. So the mitochondria is this little area. And I know you just did a podcast on this, um, which provides a lot of energy production for the cell. And what we've seen from the literature with humans that reach that age of 100, they have a high amount of mitochondria. And over time, our mitochondria dies off in our brain and in our body. So in order to grow new mitochondria, it's called mitochondrial biogenesis, one of the methods is training within the zone two uh, training zone. So zone two is great, but I'm talking about getting maybe into zone three and getting the training effects from there. And in zone three, the heart rate is is obviously higher and you probably couldn't hold a conversation. You probably couldn't hold a conversation. Maybe you're running or you're, yeah, you're hit training. And is that, so the, the 20 minutes daily, is that like 50, 50, 50, zone two, zone three, 10, 10, 10? Well, I would rather categorize it because so the zone two training to get the true effects, the mitochondrial biogenesis effects, you have to be doing it around 45 minutes. So my general rule is stick to aerobic training three hours a week. You can break that up. You can even break it up into 10 minute cycles. And what about resistance training? Oh, resistance training. I, I believe you should be doing at least three times a week. And resistance training offers a whole new range of benefits that even I'm still shocked at. You know, I'm currently uh, researching and doing my doctorate in the effects of resistance training on the brain. And it turns out that in my in what I have observed, there is far more benefits uh, for the brain during resistance training. And that's purely because of this one particular protein. So when we are doing any form of resistance training, we're doing a muscle contraction, if you will. We're contracting our muscles. When we contract our muscles, we release certain myokines from the skeletal muscle, from the cell body. So Myokines are muscle-based proteins. So they, they're inside the skeletal muscle. And when they're contracted or, or put under tension, they get released. And then they get released and they go into the bloodstream. From the bloodstream, they go through and they have an effect. They go up to the blood-brain barrier and they, have an, they go through the blood-brain barrier and they have an effect on different areas of our brain. One of them is the frontal lobe. And our frontal lobe is the most primitive part of the brain it's the biggest in terms of structure and functionality. It has the most amount of neurons that live inside our frontal lobe. And that's where all of our cognitive abilities lie. Uh, reaction time, processing speed, thinking, learning, they all reside there. So all of these myokines are getting shot through the bloodstream. They're going up into the brain and having an effect on these in a positive way, having an effect on these cognitive abilities. So you could say that resistance training enhances cognition. Wow. And so how do you think about duration and light load versus heavy load and all of that? <laughs> well, the thing is, you can't just go and do little weights at the gym, Jason, which is what I tell my parents. Um, you actually have to be working. And I would say 
you have to be working at around 70 to 75% of your one repetition max, meaning that if you lift uh, 100 kilos, let's just say for a squat, if that's your one, if you can do a hundred kilo, like one rep with a hundred kilos, and then you're dying after that's your one repetition max, if you will, you want to be working at around 70% of that. So getting 70 kilos and doing around six to eight reps. And how much time do you need to spend in the gym and how many days per week? Uh, lots of different schools of thought on this one. Yeah, look, as a, and I'm talking to the general population um, to have these effects. Let's let's just say you want to be doing three days a week of weight training, resistance training. Is that like 15 minutes, half hour, hour, or it depends on how productive you are in the? It, it depends on how productive you are. I'd rather base it on you want to do around five exercises per muscle group. Got it. So five five exercise for your chest, then five for your back, triceps, biceps, legs. Got it. Got it. So I, I, I want to stay on this because I think you know if we zoom out, we've got a me- we've got a mental health crisis here, and a lot of people are struggling, and there's a lot of interesting science on the benefits of exercise, specifically how exercise is good for our mental health, how exercise can positively impact our brain health. If someone is struggling, whether it's anxiety or maybe they're just down or maybe they're, they're depressed, how do you think about exercise as a potential RX prescription for someone out there? I think it provides a lot of benefits, especially for patients who have, you know, depressive-like symptoms. We know the amount of uh, endorphins that are released during exercise. You know, there's not just a brain benefit. There is many more. There's many things that come from exercise. For example, if you're exercising in a group, you're exercising in the form of like a community involvement. So you're getting that involvement, and we already know what community means for people who are not feeling so good. So that's another, that's one thing that's part of the, uh, that's part of this mix. Why I believe that exercise is good for starving off anxiety and depression, not to mention, like I said, the different neurochemicals that are released during the immediate, they're, they're the immediate effects of, of exercise that make you feel good. And there's also this other aspect that exercise triggers to the brain and tells the brain, I'm doing something good. And that then is what the release of these, you know, dopamine, like norepinephrine, the serotonin, all of these feel good endorphins that are released during the immediate time of exercise is what's making you feel good. So that then has an effect on your, on the way you feel. So we've talked about aerobic resistance. Are there any other types of exercise we should touch on? Yeah, I speak so fondly about neuroathletics, you know, and when I say neuroathletics, there is this subcategory of exercise, which falls under the cognitive exercise. And that that's really proprioceptive training and that it takes involve all of your senses, lights, sound, touch. And this is generally what neuroathletics is, reaction training. And I think that everyone from elite athlete 
to the very amateur everyday person, everyone should be involving this type of exercise. And all it is, is you just get a couple of balls, tennis balls, and start throwing them to the wall. And what's that? That is going, that's called an open it's classed as like an open closed activity. So what you want to do is you want to get these balls, you want to throw the ball to the wall. This is just an example of a really easy drill. You're training visual acuity because you have to see when the ball is going. You're training depth perception, which is part of the visual system. You're training reaction time, hand-eye coordination. You're doing so many different things just with this easy ball drill. What comes to mind for me now that I live in Miami is pickleball. Okay. I don't know how I feel. I'm a tennis fan. I've got tennis athletes. I don't know how I feel about this pickleball being so big right now. What is it? What is with it? Why not just play tennis? So, okay. This is a much longer conversation, but one, I I think why I think pickleball is so popular is you're not moving as much as you have to move in tennis. So people who are a bit older and don't want to or can't move as much uh, are drawn to it. Two, it's predominantly a double sport. And because the the court is smaller, it's a lot more social. Um, and so that's that's my take. I think it's the social element and the lack of movement. And I'm like, let's face it, people don't like to move. And my, I'm, myself included, I, you know, at age 48, I'm like, ah, do I really want to pick up tennis and never play? That's a lot of movement. I don't want to get, <laughs> I don't want to get, hurt, but I'm fairly athletic and tall. Like I can play pickleball and it's good for hand eye and it's social. I can play with my wife. So there you go. That's my take on pickleball. But I, I think pickleball fits, fits the bill. I think. Well, are you, but you're using bats. No, pickleball is just a little racket. It's a little court, no bats. Okay. Well, bat, I meant racket. Okay. That's what I meant. Sorry. It's Australian. Yeah. It's a little um, paddle. It's a little paddle. There you go. But it's not, it's not the hand. You're not doing this with the ball. If anybody's watching, I don't know if you put this on YouTube. Yeah, you're not doing this. You're not cupping the ball. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm actually saying get the actual ball, tennis ball, and just start throwing it to the wall. But look, pickleball is amazing. It involves sensors as well. You do have to have hand-eye coordination. You have to know where you are in space and time, which is a huge thing for proprioception. We have um, one of the things that we do at Neuroathletics, which is our signature product, which is our program. We have a two-day uh, neuroathletics coaching certificate. It's called the NAC course, and we certify trainers. We've had orthopedic surgeons come in. We have, uh, we've had GPs come in, and, and really the fundamental part of this entire certificate is getting people to understand proprioception, which is you cannot achieve anything without understanding where we are in space and time. That's what we say, you know, generally, general neuroscience principles. So we don't fall over, okay? Just a, a normal person can't fall. You know where you are in space. You know that you are standing upright intuitively because of your nervous system. And if we want to be from point A to point B, we have to walk forward, but we're not just going to just fall over. We're going to walk. So we know where we are in space and time at all times. But it turns out that in order to get an athlete to perform better, you need to understand this role. And um, proprioception is a huge thing. And that's what pickleball does. You're getting proprioception involved as well. I think hand-eye is just so critical Yeah. as, as you age. And just e- even you know, going to the gym, I, I'm working with a, a great trainer and, and oftentimes he'll have, he'll have me do 
some exercises where I have to think about what I'm doing for a moment, whether, you know, whether it's like standing on what one leg and holding a dumbbell a certain way. And it's difficult. It's like, wait, this, I actually have to think about this. And then I lose count of how many, I, I lose count of how many reps I'm doing. You count for me because I'm like really thinking hard. You know, I'm trying to balance and I'm also balanced in a certain way that's a little awkward and then also lift something and it's difficult. Yeah, I am. Um, I was just reaching for my model brain here. Um, what you're doing is, oh, I don't want to pull it apart, but there's this area that sits, there's this area that sits over here. It kind of sits where you would have headphones, for example, and that's the motor cortex. And that's what's involved in learning, learning of skill, learning a language. And this motor cortex is, it's wonderful. And if you can train, if you can train your body in terms of what you were doing with the dumbbell, whatever that is, and, or the kettlebell, and you can also think that's, you've got a double-edged sword that you can think you're training cognitive abilities. And that's where, that's where the beauty of, um, of the structural process and structural changes comes in with resistance training. Resistance training can change the shape. And when I say shape, I mean, change the structure and the functionality of your brain. And so on the subject of resistance, resistance training, a lot of people train because they want to build lean muscle mass, myself included. And in terms of supplementation, you know, one of the supplements that has a ton of science behind it is creatine but also good for the brain. I know you're a fan. So let's talk about creatine for a moment. Honestly, creatine is probably the best thing. If I could say two supplements that are incredible for the brain, it is creatine and uh, and EPA DHA, which is derived from omega-3 fatty acids. So creatine, we now know, we have substantial evidence to show that creatine is not just good for the body, but it's also I was, it's also good for the brain, but ap- actually I should change the wording. It's imperative for the brain and it helps in brain cellular metabolism and, and energy production. So we need to produce energy to do anything, to have a thought, to react to something, to produce an action. We need energy. This energy comes in the form of ATP and creatine is involved in that process. And over over time, we have a, a reduced ability to create creatine naturally. It's just part of the natural brain aging process. At the age of 30, our brain begins to atrophy, which is unfortunate and, and scary, right? To think that, wow, oh my God, my 30s. That's why they, it's always scary to turn 30. Flashback to my 20s, I'm, my early 20s. I'm, I'm not that far off 30, but uh, I think back to my early 20s where things were just so much easier. Oh, just wait, just wait. Yeah, I don't, I'm scared to like, move on further into the 30s. The more I learn about the brain, the scareder I become, scareder. But, yeah. but on that note, I, I don't want to discourage people who are, who are older than both of us. I will say at age 48, I feel amazing. And it is because I'm doing a lot of the things we're talking about today. And I don't want to discourage people because in many ways at, at age 48, I feel like I am fitter than I was 20 years ago. And so it's never too late. So just because you're in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, doesn't matter. No, and that's when you can get actually probably the best benefits because you're 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 depleted in different areas. So if you go and you supplement, which um, 
you know, I'm, I take the momentous supplements. Um, I'm huge on them and I take them every day. And there's a myth around creatine. A lot of women are afraid to take it. Right. Let's talk about that. Cause I feel like creatine, I think there was a perception that creatine was, you know, the bodybuilding supplement, like, you know, and, and only bodybuilders or, or, or guys took it, but that's not true. So I'm curious if you talk about women specifically and also dosage. Yeah. So women get scared that they're going to get bulky at the gym from lifting weights. When let me tell you, in order to get bulky, you have to be eating a ton of protein. It's not a just, you don't just accidentally get bulky from doing, it's a very serious sport that takes a lot of time, a lot of years. You have to be pushing a lot of weights and having a lot of food. So that's the first thing. That, that's a myth. So you going into the gym and lifting heavy is not going to get you bulky. We just don't have that ability as females um, unless we're doing it in a structured way. The second thing is creatine is unbelievable. Uh, a lot of women think that they're going to bloat and that may, you know, when you take creatine, it, it helps by pushing the uh, water into the cell, which is involved in what people may feel like a bloating feeling. If that happens, it's not a big deal you may just have taken too much, which in I've been now prescribing creatine. It's an absolute must for everyone that I work with and no one's ever gotten bloated. It's because we monitor the dosage. So you can be looking at taking five grams a day. That's the minimum. There's some people who are taking 20 grams a day. I don't think that's needed. I think if you start on a four days a week of five grams a day dosage, you can take this just before going to the gym. You can also take it just after the gym, if you like, whatever suits you well. If you're taking five grams a day, it's not going to have these bloating effects, at least not to my experience. What about do those effects happen? I know said four or five times a week, not every day. Is there a reason or? Because we, we, we generally like to cycle with it. Some people don't believe in it. Others do. I always say that you want to. You don't want to shock your body. This is with anything. You don't want to go through and just shock your body all at once. You want to see how you adapt to it. How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel energized? Does it make you feel bad? Does it bloat you on your first time? You want to see how you go. And you don't really need more than five grams a day, uh, four days a week. Got it. Unless you're really into that heavy bodybuilding phase, you know? So you know, we've talked about brain health, and also heart health and what's good for the brain is good for the heart and vice versa. However, I've heard you say that you believe if you had to prioritize one over the other, you would prioritize brain health over heart health. So let's talk about that. Yeah, cardiologists don't like this, but let's have a look um, at the brain one more time. For those listening on audio, I've got a, a model of the brain. The model, the, the brain is around three pounds, okay? And it's like hard, it's like jelly. That's what it is, jello, as you call it in America. And it's the most vascular rich organ in the body. Can you see this side of it? This side is just full of veins and arteries. And the brain has the most out of any other organ in the body. It has the most vascular, uh, has the most vasculature. That means that it's got the most arteries. It's got the most capillaries. And the two biggest, um, the two biggest arteries that I'll point out that come out of the heart, that come out of the aorta, are the vertebral arteries, 
and the carotid arteries. So they come up out of the aorta, they go into the brain, and all of them branch off of there. And some of them are one cell thick. So these little capillaries, as you say in the US, capillaries are one cell thick. So they're very fine. And if we are, you know, when we look at neurodegenerative diseases, when we look at slowing of the aging, uh, slowing of the brain, like when we look at damage to the brain, we know that we're going to have damage to the arteries of the brain. So we need to be protecting those arteries. And actually, just to give you a perspective on how uh, vascular rich this is. So actually, if you were to pull apart all of the arteries in the brain, it would actually span 400 miles. That's huge, right? These 400 miles worth of blood vessels crumpled up into the brain that are there to deliver to d- deliver oxygen-rich blood. So when we get oxygen that goes to the brain, it's there because it's getting delivered by the blood via these arteries. And when we work out, when we are doing resistance training, for example, you know, the best, they say that the best form of resistance training just like for the brain is when you're working your quads because they've got the most amount of muscle there. And what happens is our veins, okay, so arteries have muscles involved in them don't don't skip leg day it's all about the if you're looking for brain health you gotta you gotta make sure you're you're working your legs hard yeah don't skip don't skip leg day because when you are pushing your legs and you're contracting the your quads which is on the biggest muscle on the out on the outer layer of your legs on the front part i should say what you're doing is you're contracting and squeezing the veins and the veins are a one direction pump. So if there's blood in there, you need to be able to push the veins, squeeze them so the blood goes up into the heart. And that's why exercise is so important. And this is why the brain is, I believe, the most important organ in the body. It directs everything. It's the it's just this, it is the CEO of the entire body. I call it the federal government of the body. So with heart health, there are lots of labs one can do to, to get an understanding of how they're doing. With brain health, does the same go or is it just a feeling in terms of your cognition, your, your memory recall? How, how does one know if they're doing, how they're scoring on their brain health? That's a really good question because although you can't go and get a set of labs, you know, to see how well your brain's performing, you can do uh, certain cognitive tests. You can do memory tests, for example. Um, We have 12 cranial nerves and they're these nerves that, you know, shoot off out of the brain and go into different areas and you can test these cranial nerves. They're all responsible for something different. For example, um, you've got one nerve called the optic nerve and this nerve connects your eye to the back of the brain, which is the occipital cortex and that's generally how you see things. We can test that nerve. Um, So you can test your visual acuity to see how well your vision is working because your vision is part of the brain. You can do memory tests. You can do verbal tests. But if you're going in and checking for something called Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment, we usually do a a brain check, which is generally just having a look at reaction time, 
tests. You're having a look at memory tests. Uh, we even do uh, taste, olfactory tests as well, smell. So we've covered sleep, we've covered exercise, then there's nutrition, which is a big one. How would you describe your overall philosophy there? I, I'm not, I, it's such a controversial topic and thank God I don't, um, you know, I don't study nutrition because I got to tell you every time I put something out about nutrition, someone has a problem with it. I don't subscribe to any diet. I'm not a, a I am not a carnivore. I'm not an, I'm an, I'm an everything. I eat, I eat red meat. I eat fish. I eat a lot of green leafy vegetables. We know that, um, you know, if you're looking at how can I have the best performing brain in terms of nutrition? Nutrition plays a huge role. And when I say this, you generally want to have a wide variety of fruits and vegetables, especially especially green leafy vegetables. Fish is of paramount, which is why I'm advocating for everyone to supplement with omega-3 fatty acids, specifically EPA and DHA. It uh, helps with cell membrane fluidity. It helps with overall brain health, especially the DHA portion of EPA and DHA. I'm huge on it. We know that it can also ameliorate some of the effects of Alzheimer's disease, such as the buildup of um, amyloid beta. So I'm huge on fish and I'm huge on don't eat processed foods, trans fats. And there's a huge debate right now around uh, saturated fat. Is it bad for you? Is it good for you? It turns out that, you know, not all of it is bad. You, you can have a healthy amount of saturated fat. And by saturated fat, I mean that that comes from having grass-fed beef, for example. It contains some saturated fat. But it's you're not going to be having so much that you're going to go and eventually clog your arteries. So, yeah, we don't do nuance well. We we do we do extremes well here in America. If you say I can have meat, I'm 100 meat. If you say I can't have meat, I'm not, never having meat again. I know. I don't. That's why I, I. That's where the birth of these diets came from. These ancestral carnivore diets, which. I don't understand them. I don't even want to understand them. I'm just like, okay, I just, yeah, I stick to all food groups. Well said, as do I. Uh, you're on top of the research. You're, you're constantly putting out content on this study and that study. And I'm curious of, of everything you've seen recently. Is there is there one specific study that really stood out to you? Yeah, actually one that I was going to post about today and probably still will. Um, it is brand new. Um, February, it was released in February. It's a brand new human study that showed a whopping 29% increase in cognitive abilities of Alzheimer's disease patients when taking a combination of supplements. So what they did was they got uh, a group of 69, 69 Alzheimer's disease patients and they put them on a protocol, which was a supplement protocol. There was four supplements involved. They took one dose every single day, once daily for 28 days. And then they took two doses, two doses uh, every from day 28 to day 48. And the combination of these four supplements, they described it as combined metabolic activators because what we've seen now, yeah, what we've seen now in the research is that there is a huge metabolic dysfunction 
ability of the brain and, and relationship between metabolic dysfunction in the brain and Alzheimer's disease. And what they've also seen in the pathology of Alzheimer's disease is they've got an increase in oxidative stress. So these combined metabolic activators help lower oxidative stress in the brain and help increase brain metabolism. And when they were dosing with them, they it's a so this is specifically a phase two double blind randomized control study. So phase two so what, I, I'm dying to know, what were the four supplements they were taking? I, I left that for last. So actually it was 12 grams of L-serine, one gram of nicotinamide riboside. L-serine? L-serine, yeah, which um, is, if you look at it, it's involved in the synthesis of glycine. Um, and uh, nicotinamide riboside. NR. NR, yeah, glutathione, yeah. Um, Sorry, a gram of NR? One gram of NR, yep. That's a lot of NR. It's huge. It is. So that's the. So this is the efficacy, which I was going to point out. Um, so when you look at phase two clinical studies, phase two usually deals with the safety of the protocols, and this is why it's hard for anybody to take, like um, you know, nicotinamide riboside or NAD. It's you wouldn't just go out and have a gram of it. So right. Right. So, so okay. So we got, and so that was number two. What was number three and four? Two point five grams of NAC N acetylcysteine, and three three point seven grams of L carnitine, which is involved in fat metabolism. Got it. That's an interesting group. Yeah, NAC. I will take a high dose of NAC when I'm sick. Why? And that works. That's I work with my my doctor Frank Lipman. Oh, I love Frank. Yeah, I've known Frank's been my doctor for like a decade. You're in good hands. Yes, uh, he's the best. And so, post COVID, I've had a couple viruses that have come and gone. They just like really wiped me out. And he'll put me on high dosage NAC and high dosage vitamin D3 for a couple of days and it tends to work. Um, but these are all powerful. Like if you talk about NAC, L-carnitine, NR, and the first one. L-serine. Serine. These are all powerful. Like we're not talking like vitamin D3 here or vitamins. Like <laughs> these are powerful supplements. But if you have Alzheimer's, you need help. Yeah, you need help and your brain is very powerful. So it needs to be treated um, with power because it, it, it will fight back and say, no, I'm, I'm powerful. I'm going to get rid of you, which is why they're having so much, uh, such a high dose. So I'm, I'm super excited. And this has changed the way that I've started to supplement now, now that I'm researching this, like um, I'm taking L, L I'm taking glycine. So I don't really need to be taking um the L-serine. I'm not big on NAC, but I maybe start to include it. Glutathione, you know, I I don't think there is too much efficacy when people are going and doing a glutathione IV. I don't know if that's a, or even taking it, you know, exogenously. Like, I don't think that it's a, it's been proven yet clinically that it can actually penetrate the cell. Yeah. W without going down the rabbit hole, 
the rabbit hole of all things liposomal. It's something we took a hard look at with our products and just couldn't go there because it's science isn't there. Yeah, the liposomal um, glutathione. I've um, I had it was a a, ser- a serum. I, I, sorry, it wasn't a it wasn't an actual supplement. But I was like, why am I experimenting with this? Yeah. So, for those listening who want to be optimizing for their for their brain health, whether they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60s, and so on. I'm curious, does this change by decade in your opinion? Or are there certain things that we should all be doing regardless of age if we want to optimize for brain health? Like I said, if you are working on your sleep and you are working on your exercising nutrition, that's hard enough. That is hard enough. And then let's just say you've got that down pat because that's the best thing you can do for the brain. Even if you are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I would be, you know, dumbfounded if you could do something other than more powerful than what exercise could do. Now let's, let's just say that you are doing all of those three things. The next thing is supplementation. Now that comes with understanding your bloods. I I always say that, you know, go and understand. I've done the omega-3 index test, which tests the amount of omega-3 within the red blood cell. Then you can supplement from there. But without a doubt, everybody should be ingesting at least four grams a day of EPA and DHA. And what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now? I think technology. You know, this whole AI is really scary to me. I think we're going to be looking at, um, I think instead of seeing a doctor, like a GP, you know, not a specialist, I think instead of seeing a GP, I think we're going to be talking to a robot that's going to be taking and prescri- and sending the prescription out to the pharmacy. And I think that's going to be much, uh, much faster than what a human is capable of. Um, but in the term, in the realm of supplementation, I think we're going to become smarter in our uh, recommendations. I think brain is going to start to take the forefront. I was talking about the brain back in uh, 2014. I remember getting on a podium um, and saying that I think brain is the future. And people were like, oh, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Sit down. Go back to Australia. So, yeah. I, look, I think the brain has become front and center with the mental health epidemic. And I think you, know, you mentioned nutrition. It is ripe with conflict. There are, it's an emotional topic. So many of the studies are conflicting. Uh, it is just full of tribalism. And there's some of that in exercise too, but the science is just so strong and overwhelming. And in many ways, exercise is the ultimate elixir. And my end of one, personally, I found I'm a lot more active now than I was in New York because it's you know sunny here in Miami every day. And I've even found that when I recently did my extensive blood work with Dr. Frank Lipman, I, I, I thought you know my results were going to be worse because we had just moved here. We were going out to eat a lot, a lot of French fries, you know, all the you know, it was the tourists in my new my new city. But I was exercising a lot more. My blood work was significantly better. I'm an N of one, but we're all N of ones. Go figure. I know. I know. So 
my last question, what concerns you and what excites you in our world of health and wellness? What concerns me is the, uh, well, first of all, the reason why the Neuroathletics Coaching Certificate exists. Um, I feel like it's a responsibility now to train coaches and trainers on what the brain is and what the nervous system is. Because we're seeing such a high rate of strokes and these neurovascular diseases, we need to have more people on board at these local gyms, if you will, that can understand how to train a patient like this. Even um, occupational health and safety standards needs to be raised. I think the level of education needs to be raised. I think I honestly think that to train somebody at an actual gym to be a trainer, you should have a degree. I don't think that you should be taking the the health of somebody into play without a degree. That's a, that's what scares me that um, we're seeing people who are not in our field, who don't really understand, they just trust somebody who's just going to give them this advice that just doesn't exist and shouldn't exist and can do more harm than good. That scares me. Um, what do you think is driving this? The strokes, um, hypertension, which um, is then if you keep reversing that, maybe it's uh, stress and environmental uh, interventions, like lack of, I would say, lack of exercise, but also lack of proper nutrition, lack of education. Right. Something I've spoken about so many times in this podcast, and our listeners are probably tired of hearing, but homocysteine is a big personal issue for me. And high homocysteine, which I had sky high and now it's normal, uh, can lead to... Did you have the MTFR mutation? Yes, I do. And the double C677T. But I, I went from 63, 63 to 10. Were you supplementing with B vitamins? Yeah, we, we essentially created a, a supplement for, for me <laughs> and everyone else, but, but, but I, I am convinced that, well, one half the population has the MTHFR gene, but I also believe that most people aren't properly methylating and that there are downstream longevity effects. And I, I view it as like an insurance policy and most, most docs don't look at it. Well, I know. And I, I know that I, I'm strong with my stances on this. I, um, I visit just for fun. i every time I go to Australia, I visit the doctor, the GP. I choose a different one each time I go, and I ask them to run an LP little A. Yeah, another big one. None of them know what I'm talking about, and I do this purely to understand the uh, what's happening in Australia, which is my country where I was educated, why people are getting away with really not understanding what LP little A is. And so LP little A, for those listening, essentially to – well, first of all, they still don't reimburse it here in America. So it was something I had to pay for out of pocket. Um, they don't reimburse it in Australia either. And heart disease r- runs in my family. And I-, I did think that it was oh, seven or eight years ago, Bob Harper from The Biggest Loser kind of put it on the map because here's like this super fit guy and he had a heart attack. And it turned out his LPA was sky high. And it's largely genetic. So like it can move a little bit, but you'll you'll know if it's really high or or normal like there you essentially it's hard to move the baseline like other markers and everyone and if it's sky high like you need to you're you're at serious risk you could be in fantastic shape and everything else could look good but you're at serious risk and everyone should know what that is and it's the only thing unfortunately it's not the same as apob or um, ldl 
it, it's the only thing that you cannot modify. Yes, it's largely the same. Uh, so, okay, so we talked about what concerned you. What excites you? What are you excited about? I am excited. I'm excited about um, neurotechnology. We've seen, you know, tech becoming more and more advanced, especially in this area. Um, my primary modality, I, I mentioned earlier, was an EEG. Now, we've seen many portable EEGs come and they've gone and there's companies that are getting, you know, evaluated and then they're coming straight down because you really can't replicate uh, a hospital-grade EEG. But I'd be really excited to see if we could replicate a hospital-grade EEG um, and bring it to the forefront to a consumer perspective. However, I'm also, I hope one day, do you wear a CGM? I have, but I currently don't. I, I've tried all of the brands. I did it for a week and I thought it was insightful, but I got my insights and I'm good. And, and that's fantastic. I loved it. I was wearing, I was wearing them for um, a few months and I loved the insight. And I thought, imagine if we could get a portable blood pressure in real time monitor. So that's what I'm excited about. Um, I, I dare say there's somebody working on it and it's, it'd be very hard to to bring that to a consumer stand front, but I'd be excited for that maybe in the next 12, 13 years. For me, that may be a little TMI. Uh, I'll look at my heart rate. <laughs> um, is there anything else you would, you would like to touch on before we uh, wrap? Anything you'd like to share with our audience? Just the fact that you have one brain and it is responsible for all of your emotions and everything that you're feeling. We often look at something that's happened in the past, you know, I'm upset because of this situation, but really it's a, a result of uh, how your brain has programmed and felt that situation. And you shouldn't be at the mercy of it. You should be controlling your brain. Don't let it control you and you have the power to you really have the ability to turn it into whatever you want amen louisa thank you so much thanks jason <laughs>